Welcome to episode six of the State of Security podcast from stateofsecurity.com, sponsored as always by Microsoft Inc. And uh, let's see, it is sort of a chilly afternoon for the end of June. It uh, is probably about 65 degrees here in Ohio. It's been rainy for a few days. Uh, and we have been uh, just sort of spending a lot more time in the studio. So we've got some great content on this episode. Before we jump into it, though, I, I really want to reach out and uh, make sure that all the listeners are aware of one of the most amazing talks uh, that I have seen in my 20-plus year career here in InfoSec. And I, I watched the video. I wasn't there live, but uh, a number of friends pointed it out to me. And if you go to irongeek.com, that's I-R-O-N geek.com, you can look up the B-Sides Cleveland uh, show that took place just in the last couple weeks. At that show, there was a fantastic afternoon keynote given by Chris Nickerson. And Chris is not just an amazing speaker, but of course one of the pioneers of red teaming in our industry. It, it's uh, just fantastic content. He's, he's very much... Uh, an amazing person on stage. He's an amazing human being. Now, uh, I will tell you, Chris is not necessarily safe for work, so you want to make sure if you're going to listen to it, throw on those head headphones, but uh, it is definitely something that everyone should hear. And, and the talk is titled, So You Want to Be an InfoSec Rockstar. And in it, Chris really talks about how his life has evolved, what the impacts have been on his personal life over the last few years uh, by pursuing his InfoSec career. And I just think it's a, it's a fantastically brave and amazing, uh, amazingly personal insight into some of the things that happen in our industry and some of the good things and some of the crap things that you have to put up with if you're going to be uh, sort of a rock star in this industry. And uh, it just really struck me. It, the, the talk is about an hour long, uh, but it is just amazing, and I really applaud Chris for bringing up some of the things uh, that he brought up and, and exposing some of his personal life uh, to the to the community. But uh, I do think folks need to know what what is like, what um, what life is like when you're trying to pursue. Uh, being the best of the best in, in this or any other industry. And so I think it's, uh, it's very much worthwhile listening to. Now, while we're sort of on this personal kick, uh, this month's episode really has a, a great uh, set of content. The first interview is with someone we'll call Tom. Uh, and in this case, Tom's voice has been altered. There's, there's been some, uh, you may hear some echo a little bit of echo, but it's the voice altering software. Uh, we've we've sort of gone behind the curtain with Tom on one of the big breaches that's been in the news here in the last uh, couple of years. And this was an immense breach. It's in a highly regulated industry, and we don't focus so much on the technical issues. Uh, I think if you were to read these breach uh, news releases and follow them in the press, you would quickly see uh, over-analysis of uh, some of the technical details of the breach and uh, a lot of noise about attribution and who did what and, and um, you know, what the response team did. 
And so in this case, we really get to have a conversation with Tom that is deeply personal. What is it like to work on the inside of, of such a large breach? What happens uh, to your personal life when the breach and incident response process extends out to six months? Um, what's it like to work with management and to work with the regulator? Uh, and I wish that you could see the video of this because we were, uh, we were talking over Skype. The interview took place over Skype. And the physical changes in Tom's demeanor as he uh, thinks back across the last uh, you know, six, eight months and, and the impact it had in his life was just amazing. Um, I think you'll hear that. I think it comes across in the interview just what an impactful situation this is. And I think we spend a lot of time as, as technical security people focus on uh, the process and, and the tools and the techniques of incident response. But I think there's much more here and I, I think that uh, this has really turned out to be an amazing thing. Uh, then after the outtake, I've uh, started a new series called Shorts. And uh, this month's short is a quick interview. It's I think about three or four minutes with Bill Semp. Uh, and he's riffing on the fact that really today in the world, everything is, is code. So make sure you stick around uh, after the outtake for that. We really appreciate it as always. Uh, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you, as I said, by Microsoft Inc. This month, uh, we've launched a new uh, daily threat briefing that is powered by our, our Tiger Tracks uh, targeted threat intelligence stuff. So if you're interested in getting a daily briefing and new attacks, new events that are going on, uh, when new tools are released, uh, what industries are under attack, what new, uh, what new attack trends are out there, what new uh, TTPs are going on in the world, you can do that uh, by subscribing to our uh, new commercial offering, which is this daily threat briefing. Uh, those subscriptions also include what we call breakout briefings, which are special uh, slide decks and presentations and phone calls with your management team if needed uh, for high vulnerabilities, high risk vulnerabilities, high impact vulnerabilities. So uh, you can find out more information at microsolved.com or just feel free to ping me on Twitter. I'm at L-D-H-U-S-T-O-N. As always, thanks for tuning in. Without further ado, I'm going to drop into our, in, our incident response interview with Tom, and uh, that'll be followed by a little bit of an outtake, and then make sure you stick around for Bill Semp closing out the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're having a great month. This has been fun. Take care. Hello there. Security peeps, it's Brent Houston again from MSI, and today... It is a lovely sunny day here in central Ohio, and I am sitting across the Skype channel from a friend of mine who we'll call Tom. And Tom has an interesting story that he is going to share with us today. He's going to really pull back the curtain and talk about what it's like inside of a breach. And in this case, we're not going to talk about the technical details of the breach because this is a, a big breach. It's been way overanalyzed in the news, and uh, Tom will talk about his role in it. But more than anything, I think as security practitioners, 
Tom has some amazing insights about what it feels like, what life is like after a breach, what it's like inside of the incident response process. And that's, I think, what we want to share with you today. So sit back, grab something to drink, and let's have a conversation with Tom. So Tom, first off, thanks for joining us. No problem, Brent. Pleasure. So Tom, let's just get right into the point. So one day you come walking straight in and you're expecting an average day at the office and it turned out to not be so average. So tell us a little bit about that. What happens? How do you first learn that things have, have gone wrong and, and what does that feel like? Well, Brent, really the, you know, the first thing that, that comes to mind is that, you know, when, whenever you experience an incident, whenever you experience a breach, the first thing that typically the information flow uh, is difficult at best. People want to keep it under wraps. People want to keep it appropriate until you really know what's going on. But there's a fine balance you've got between getting the information from what's going on versus where the vector is you need to go and investigate versus the next steps of what you need to do to fix it, right? So the very first thing was, okay, here's what's happened. Here's where we are. And the, the very next thing you need to establish, so you, you know kind of generally what's happened, but the very next step is, okay, we need information. We need information about the firm, information about your assets. Most people think that this is something you take for granted. I'm telling you, in an incident, the, the biggest thing you need the, when you walk in is the information at your fingertips. You need to know your firm. You need to know your setup. You need to know your infrastructure. You need to know your network. Without that information, the ability to dig, slice, dice, sort it, the analyzing to see what's changed, what you need to look at, once you have breach information, that's the next greatest thing because you have all these external forces that are cascading down on you. You know, you got, I hate to say it, but the board, executive management, senior management, IT management, I mean, everybody, you know, wanting answers. And typically in these incidents, there's not a ton of staff that's, sitting around, you know, trying to help you get this done, everyone's trying to keep it close. It's, so, it's, it's a fine line. So I hear what you're saying. There's definitely a lot of, a lot of questions, a lot of incidents, you know, result in sort of this closed uh, information flow. But, but let's step back a little more personal for a minute. So what, you know, we all are familiar with that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Does it feel like that, like riding, a, you know, a, a big roller coaster, or, or what was your immediate response to the news that this this breach had occurred? Well, the immediate response was anxiety because, you know, you can plan for these things. You can run scenarios. You can do tabletops until you're blue in the face, right? Till you stare one in the face, it's not really. There's no. There's no. It's the set course of action. Sure, you have your guidelines, but there's anxiety of it's like, okay. Am I taking the right first steps? How do we make sure we're taking the right first steps? We've got the first steps in hand. We're executing. You know, what are the next steps? Who do you communicate to? And then again, there's the pressures of everyone wanting to know where are we at? Where are we at? Where are we at? So you, you feel the anxiety of got to get it right. But it's also there. It's the, it's a, it's a, kind of a personal warrior moment for, okay, can we do this? We've practiced enough. Well, let's 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 try and go out and get this done. And yet, I hate to laugh about it, but you know, Mike Tyson always is famous for that quote that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And exactly. uh, 
Exactly. Maybe, is it like that moment? Like, you know, that's when all of a sudden all the things that you practice and, and um, you know, who's going to sign what form and, and what, uh, you know, what uh, room are we going to all gather in and who has the playbook, right? Is that when all that stuff comes to yeah, fruition? That's, that's my favorite part is in a tabletop exercise, you have all these roles, the legal guys sit around and they're like, well, you know, here's what we're going to communicate. Here's what we're going to do. And when you're in a breach with that pressure, the only thing you're doing is within your team, within your core team that you form, you've got each other's backs. Really, it's kind of you versus the world. And that's sad to say because it's internal to the firm. But you're out trying to solve the next best problem, the next thing. Yes, those things are rehearsed. And I'm sure they happen outside the core team. But within the core team, it was uh, a constant battle. And by constant battle, I meant it went on probably for close to you know, three to four months. But the first eight weeks were pretty much 12 to 15 hour days shifts across the small core group to try and get the problem solved. So let's kind of talk about that for a second there. Obviously there's an immediate impact on what the morale of the team is because something bad really happened. And we all as security people, we try really hard to make sure that doesn't happen and now it's happened. So what's the immediate impact on the team and how do you respond to that as a manager? The team immediately they look for leadership. They're 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 trying. They like you have this incident. You have this information. You only have a limited set of information. They want you to be able to lead and direct them for you know what are the next steps. They they realize that you may not be making the right step, but it's it's that initial shock of okay we're here for you. Like it's the sympathy, the kind of the sympathetic. We're here for you. Tell us what to do. We'll get it done. What's the next step? And it's it's iterative like that. Because you only have the information that you have, and you're you're constantly searching for the next step. What's the next thing we need to do? What's the next vector we need to think of? And the toughest thing is after hour, let's say, 36 to 48, is now you're in depth, right? You're sucked in. You have to have the wisdom to step back, look at the situation, and then think outside of what you're just immediately looking at. It's like, okay, what are the next vectors? What is the next thing? What is the next step you have to look at? And trying to take yourself aback and remove yourself from the situation. And when you're in the middle of it, you're part of, part of a small core team, very hard to do because soon everybody's totally involved in, in the incident itself. And how's the impact on the individual sysadmins and the folks who are actually out there running the systems that are involved? I mean, do some of them take it personally? Is there ever confrontation between the the team that's doing the response versus the the day-to-day operations folks? Sure. I mean, you're going to have that, but I mean, everyone's goal at this point, like you don't have time for the, you know, what you're talking about is that you've got taken the time to think about, think through, make an assessment, kind of make a judgment on your skill set, things you could have done, things you could have done. In this scenario, at at the time frames that we're talking about right now, you don't have that luxury, right? Everyone's out trying to do the right thing. So everyone has an opinion on, you know, what they think it could be and, they're like, um, sorry, I'm trying to think of examples. There are situations that you have to almost do a mini DR because in order to isolate some things, you have to shut down, reroute, uh, potentially impact your customers that people are trying to weigh on. They're trying to do the right thing, but they're also trying to balance the incident itself that, hey, here's what we need to solve. Here's where we need to go. But at the same time, we can't, we got to get in contain. And contain means somebody may not get something as fast as they usually get it. And that is a tough line to walk. 
And then that's when you're, you're now crossing outside of your small group. You're going to the business and say, guys, we have a real problem. Here's what's going to happen. Now, one of the toughest things that we hear from people who have worked incidents, and, and you hear this more and more as the breaches get bigger and bigger today, is you still have to do your day-to-day -day job. Um, most folks don't just get the luxury of, hey, we're going to stop all the things that we do and go to work just on this incident for the next four months and, and the heck with everything else. You have to do both now, right? And yeah. is there a bit of that that goes on as well? There's a lot of that that goes on as well. And that's where it really becomes tough, especially the longer the incident goes on. Because you've got folks, I mean, there are entire days where you're not that, you know, to your point, your job is rolling merrily along and you're not doing it. And you're, you know, you're ensconced in this incident. And, you know, you're continually, again, trying to meet the bar, trying to move the target. And the target moves every day. It's not like your day job where, you know, you may not know exactly what you're going to get every day, but you have a, a rough guesstimate, a rough idea of the things you need to do, the goals you need to accomplish. Every day in an incident, every, every six hours in an incident, different set of goals, different set of objectives. And as the incident goes longer, obviously those stretch out. But during the first 48 hours, the end of the first week, it is just a constant battle to ensure that you're covering the next thing. And as I said, your job rolls merrily along, and that isn't getting done. And so then pulling people in to help run what happens every day, along with fighting the incident, it, it gets to be quite a resource challenge. And that's where morale is get, gets tough because you know, the company did a lot to, to help the incident team. But at the same time, you couldn't talk to anybody about the incident either. So even the the ability to vent, the ability to talk to other people, the ability to you know, blow off steam, it was a contained incident. Uh, you know, to this day, people still don't know what happened. And that's that's a tough, tough thing. Uh, I know one of the things that you hear about in first response and, and in incident response uh, in these cases is literally there's just no one to bounce ideas off of and it turns into a vacuum chamber. How do you, uh, how do you try to prevent that and still let people try to express creativity or, or get some fresh ideas, uh, another set of eyes in, but not let the you know, cat out of the bag, so to speak? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's the tricky part, right? Because there, as you go through, you know, I, I told you, as you go through every six hours, the objective changes, right? So every six hours, it's a, the, the other evaluation you do is, well, okay, who else needs to be on the inside? Who else needs to be within the contained group? And that's something that's taken very seriously. And uh, even after you've been at it for two months, three months, that group is still contained. The group still is the same set. The, the thing you have to do is, is, again, do that step back with the due diligence for are there other things we can think of? Can we step back for a minute? You know, leading by, I hate to say, example of, of um, not necessarily noncommittal, but the ability to let people think independently. It's like, okay, guys, let's stop on the current thought process. What are some other things you could do? You have to lead by that example and having people in leadership positions that will allow you that freedom and take that pressure off of you, key to the success of the team. So let's talk about knowledge management for a moment. I mean, you've got all of this data flowing around. You've got people with different opinions. You've got different plot lines that are all uh, moving around. How do you keep all that straight? It doesn't sound like something you can just sit down with a notepad and start everybody jotting. How do you get all that together and keep it, keep all the threads on, uh, from unwinding. 
so we 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 formed up a command center that uh, within the command center people have roles right there are people day to day coordinating uh, remediation activities there were people who were advising senior management there were there were reports that went out twice a day there was a a, a contained senior management call where you know we gave updates on you know where we were they asked questions about business impacts and then. Um, you know, the team within itself, everybody had a role within that. There was a set of, we took the um, plot lines that you called them, broke them down by group, and each group was responsible for the plot lines with daily updates twice a day. And within those groups, there were smaller groups that set out to attack lines of defense one by one. That sure sounds like a lot of people, a lot of resources. It's, it was a lot, but again, when I look at the, the incident itself, Really, not a lot of people considering the work that had to be done. Yeah, that's... and again, the same people did a majority of the work. And like I said, it was it was um, it just people wondered what happened, what was going on, but nobody would ask you. That that's amazing, and it's got to be an an odd feeling to have gone on so long for so many months. Um, let's talk, circle back for a minute about the management interaction you, you said there was a contained call and and now you've got to brief these management teams and you know that's going all the way up to the board what was that like were they aggressive were they uh pretty laid back you know what what was it like to have to interact at that level with such critical information so management they um supportive firm uh let us do what we needed to do and then would would outtake for okay, kind of they did the situational assessment where this is where you are. They may not make any comment during the initial call, but then on the secondary call where they've had some time to digest, they've had some time to analyze. They would come back with a direction set or some things they think of. And again, they may have uh, being separated from it. There may have been a vector or a process that they thought about. It's like, hey, why don't we do this? And then we would realign the team and attack for the next shift of the, the, the command center and then realign and move forward with that. So supportive, but um, again, understanding of the effort that everyone was putting in. It was Herculean to, to, to resolve the incident. So Tom, I mean, let's talk for a minute. This is a highly regulated industry. We won't get into which one, but there was clearly a regulator out there in the world looking at the at the issue and they're going to be leaning on management what was it like to know that that regulator was out there did you feel like that was a help were they more of a hindrance what were the demand loads from the regulator uh interesting enough the regulators were very supportive uh they they obviously wanted updates but there was no um what I would call browbeat or push for, hey, you know, you've got to solve this. You got to, they, they recognized that we were doing what we were doing. They understood, understood the steps we were taking and the direction we were taking. And, you know, they, they quietly observed. Uh, I'm not sure that they came back with any recommendations, but again, they quietly observed and were supportive and offered resource if, if, if potentially that there was something that could be done for help. I mean, obviously not their forte, but, you know, they, they were more supportive than anything else. And that's very interesting because you hear oftentimes, uh, not so much in incidents, but in the day-to-day -day operation that a lot of folks are really head-to-head -head with that regulator. But 
it sounds like in this case they they really were trying to help you guys do the right thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it was similar. I mean, granted, an incident's not a full-blown disaster incident, but I know that, you know, in in situations where people have had to, to declare full-blown disasters, you know, again, they're listening, they're advising, they're, they're not holding the line, they're trying to help you get back to where you need to be. So what about law enforcement? Did, did the uh, incident involve information that came from law enforcement? Was there a liaison between the incident response team and law enforcement, or did that flow through management? Uh, there, so the incident team, I will tell you, so even within the, the architecture of our incident team, there was another incident team that what I would call the core inner, inner, inner core incident team, that inner core incident team had its, the interaction with those folks. And yes, there was involvement. Okay. It was very close involvement from what I understand. Yeah. And we don't, we don't have to get uh, too deep in that. And let's, let's kind of talk for a minute about the working conditions inside the team. So you've got this group of people, you're, you're working, you know, six hour shifts, as you said, with constantly changing goals and, and focus. Was that something that ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week or? 24 or, seven, the wow. shifts were 12 hour shifts. And it went on until we could, again, we had to formulate the larger team, the, the larger team, I say the larger team to relieve those people because, uh, uh, again, the work was going on. Those people had to go back to get to their regular jobs, and they needed relief anyway. I mean, you couldn't keep going at the pace of, you know, 70, 80 hours a week for, you know, you had families, things going on. It just wasn't possible to sustain. Uh, you know, the, the company was terrific. They provided, you know, food, uh, it, you know, everything they could to try and make you comfortable. But the reality was, you know, here's the team, here's your group, and we were together to solve the problem. And that's that's really amazing. And so you've got these team of folks, and they're working, essentially handing and tagging in and out and handing data off, and they're working 24-7 to get to whatever that point is. Um, just inside of that team, I mean, is there friction because everybody's nerves are raw or do they sort of settle into the routine of it and it becomes a job like every other? And I hate to use the parallel, but it's kind of like a battle, right? You're kind of like comrades in arms. Even people that outside of the incident typically didn't get along. When you're formed into this team and you realize you have to depend on each other to get from A to B to C to D and from shift to shift, day to day, week to week. And that, you know, if you someone had to cover for a family event, you needed those people. The friction was kind of far and few within the team, far and few between, because you were you all got you needed each other to get to the common goal. And there just wasn't any place for for dissension. And that's got to be an interesting place to be as a manager. But it also has to be challenging because you essentially have to maintain that balance uh, over time and, and watch those relationships. Did um did you see intimacies that were formed within the team during that time? Um, I know that I became, I got to know people I never got to know. I became closer to people that uh, I typically didn't have an opportunity to interact with. Uh, the team was, uh, we were brought together for individual talents. It wasn't necessarily, if you had to go and hire this team, as a as a working you know sock for example you would not have hired these people but these people were brought together for for reasons that 
the skill set was needed to address the situation. So, um, yeah, I would say you did form some bonds. And I mean, you know, some of those people, we spent a lot of time together. And it, it really is, it, it's kind of like a battle situation where you just, you're inundated. And again, not trying to make that as, as a, a, a good analogy, but you just, when you spend that much time with some people trying to pull off the things you're trying to pull off, do the things you're doing. Because the expectations, uh, again, it's not where, you know, you got 15 widgets you have to build in 12 hours. It's get it done as soon as you can. And if it's 5,000 things you're attacking or 15,000, they all have to be done. They all have to be done in a timely manner, and you're relying on that team to get it done. What happens with budgeting? I mean, usually the job of managers is to figure out how much things cost and how do you spend this money. Um, you know, in an incident like this, this is certainly not a, you know, a plan for budget expense. How do you figure out where the money goes and make sure that you're spending it appropriately? Um, so that's a great question. Um, you know, initially, especially I would say during the first, during, I would call it the containment phase where you're analyzing budget isn't even a thought. It's it, literally, it's, you know, we got to get this done. We need to do whatever it takes. It's when you settle into, you know, weeks four and five where it's like, all right, we've got contain. Now, what are the things we need to do to, to get right? That's when you step into budgeting. You decide what you need. You try to re-forecast. Take a look at what you need and then step back to go, okay, so this is where we need to go. This is what we need to do. Then prioritize it against what you thought you were going to do. Make some decisions from a management perspective. And that does include the business, which, again, gets tricky because you get into the intricacies of why you spent money on X, and it's really, really technical. It's a tough, it's a tough conversation. So if you're an incident responder, you're a security person, and you're listening to this, uh, on the technical side, right? You're a you're an IDS person. You're a firewall admin, or you're responsible for authentication and authorization. What can you do to help prepare for events like this down the road, so that uh, you've got the data that you need to hand off to to someone like an incident response team? And if no one gets anything else out of this podcast other than this, pay attention. You've got to get your information, whatever you're responsible for. If it's firewall, know your firewall rules. Know your firewall. Know what should be going on. Know what shouldn't be going on. Have decent reporting come out of the metrics you put out. Understand them and make sure they're clean. If you're the guy who has the asset inventory, if you're responsible for the asset inventory, make sure the asset inventory is clean. It's up to date. You have ways that you can pull information out of it. You have ways you can innovate. You have ways you can be different. The, the worst thing you can do is have bad information, stale information, or no information because your battle to go against whatever it is that incident is, you already halfway lost the battle. Your uphill climb to get out of it is exponential. You have got to know your data. Know your situation. Know your what you own. Own it. You have to own it. And I mean from every aspect. Just don't don't be passive. Don't sit. Don't go, well, you know, we can fix it tomorrow. Fix it today because you will reap. If something should happen, you'll get it back tenfold. And that's really an, an interesting thing because right now there's this movement within information security for folks to be more generalist, to know more of the spectrum of security controls and, and tools. But it takes really intimate knowledge of both a tool set, a control set, 
but also the environment that you're in. It takes that intimate knowledge of those things to really get to the effective level that you're talking about. So how do we balance the, the sort of need for management, the push to be more generalist, while at the same time maintaining some level of intimate knowledge of the things we're responsible for? That's uh, it's a great question. Um, that's a really great question, Fred. It's hard because from a business sense, yes, and I understand the drive to generalism, right? I understand it. It's, it's all about volume metrics, you know, cost per unit, lower the dollar. But there has to be at some level, you have to have the confidence, the expertise, and the knowledge that goes along with an incident is about specific events, specific information, specific vectors. You're never going to get attacked by a technology generalist, right? You're going to get attacked by somebody who spends all day. All they worry about is ways to get in firewalls. All they worry about is what can we do? What asset management, you know, what are some weaknesses in asset management we can exploit to get from A to B to C to D? That takes you have to have the knowledge on both sides. The person attacking you spent a lot of time looking at that stuff. You should be just as familiar on your side of the fence. And again, you need technology generals. You need those folks to run organizations. You absolutely do. But you, the balance, I don't know the answer to that question, Brent. I don't know the balance, but I know you need both. Yeah, and that's, it's such a tough thing right now that the industry is going through. And uh, it, it, it really is sort of... Um, this thing that management really, really wants, even though they don't understand in a lot of cases that the long term of that really is hurtful. Um, so, I mean, let's kind of step back again for just a moment. So this, you come in, you're expecting, a, you know, an average day, this really bad thing happens. And the next several months of your life really spin out of control. What's the impact of that like at home? What what happens at home? I mean, you ha not to uh, allude too deeply, Tom, but you have a wife and kids and a family at home. What does uh, what does that do to your home life? Uh, it's it's tough, Brent. Uh, a tough somewhere between tough and brutal. Uh, you don't you're not spending the time the time you are at home. You're exhausted. Uh, you're not doing anything well. At some point in, in this process it goes on long enough. You start, you're not giving your top performance because you don't have it to give, right? So you come home and you, you know, got people that have expectations. You have things that you need to do. There are expectations from family, from friends. Uh, it is extremely difficult to, um, to do that with a smile. I got to be honest with you because the other part of your life is so dominated by what goes on there that uh, it, it, it becomes a, a, a challenge it's difficult, uh, and you you really need to have an understanding family, understanding friends to help you through those things, uh, and it's because it's just as tough on them. They recognize it, and it, it's hard on everybody involved, um, and it, it's something everyone should be aware of, and it's, it's a tough balance. Now, if you had somebody who was younger going into this career, and, and they were talking about uh, becoming an IT manager or, uh, let's say, an even an, a SOC manager or an incident response manager, would that be something that you would really want them to understand that there is a huge personal cost, a huge emotional cost to these incidents? It's not just the work that happens at the office. It's all of the 
ripple effects of that in their lives. Oh, absolutely, because it's something that, you know, most people, it, it certainly isn't in the job description. And as you go through an event, it's not something that you even understand when it starts that that's going to happen. It's just the reality of what is. And the, the problem, as we've alluded and talked about here, is that so few people, so much work, distributed and you can't it just has that negative impact and you totally need to understand that there is an impact on your life and uh even at a young age you need to be think about how that's going to affect you how it's going to affect your family and the things you're going to do to try and help yourself through those times so looking back across that time and this was what roughly six months out of your life right um, right so roughly six month time frame what are some of the key lessons that if you could leave yourself a note, uh, you know, go back in time and leave yourself a note, what would you tell yourself professionally to pay more attention to? Professionally, pay more attention to the details of why uh, source systems, core systems, systems that contain information were in the state they were in putting more emphasis on making sure data was clean, data was kept, data was understood. Um, the things, the shortfalls that we found during the first two weeks were known about, but they weren't considered high priority. No one likes going through and doing maintenance on information, cleaning up data, ensuring that you've got the right firewall, firewall rule sets. It's all administrative it's all administrative headache. It's all noise until you have an incident. Then it's the most important thing you've got. And when you have a pile of, you know, it's, it's, you're already at a deficit. It's much harder to work out. From a personal perspective, I don't know how you ever prepare for that. Um, you know, I was thankful for the people I was with. I was thankful for the team that I got meshed with. And, uh, uh, I don't know much what else to say about that. And I think I want to close this up. I know we're getting close on time. I, I promised you I wouldn't take up much more than a half an hour of your life after all that you've been through. Uh, but uh, one of the, the questions that came up so many times as I was talking to folks and preparing for this interview was how do you know when you're done? How does the incident response team know when it's time to pack it up and, and call this done and write the lessons learned, how do you make that decision? Uh, to be honest with you, Brent, you don't. You never do, right? There's always something else you can do to prepare. There's always another change that comes up. There's always some other piece of information that you don't have. There's always some other way to organize it. There's always another vector. There's always another change. What you can do is be better prepared, not taking the small things for granted, figuring out what you need what you need to do to organize yourself so that should something happen, you're as prepared as you can be. And if you think those small things are just administrative noise, again, you've lost half the battle. Get, get it together, pull it together, organize it, understand it, and you will be so much further along in the process. And when you're, you're working the incident and you're, and you're watching this in order to figure out that you essentially are, are, you've gone as far as you really can or you should is that based on like diminishing return like we're starting to run out of facts to obtain or or well, how do you make that decision 
Yeah, because eventually you do hit. It's funny that you mentioned that's the exact phrase, diminishing return. You do hit a diminishing return, right? Where the things that you've looked at and you get to the point where now you're in the low, the low risk, low risk items. So it's at that point where it's like, okay, is it time for us to disband? Have we done everything that we could? And you will take that stop point right there, and then you'll take a step back and look at things holistically and go, okay, what are some of the other things we took for granted outside of this that we need to fix and, and, and go attack those things? And it really I, is ongoing. Sorry. And then I assume, Tom, there's some sort of lessons learned that happens, right? You guys mm -hmm. close with a feedback loop, and hopefully we train and we get better and we document the things that – uh, we need in the future and that, you know, the, the ways to optimize the process. What did that feel like? Uh, it was sometimes the learning, documenting the learning experience, talking about the learning experiences is difficult given the situation. Um, the other thing you mentioned earlier that's odd about it is that you really, you don't talk about it with many people. The same people that you've been with it for six months you're it's the same people you're giving the postmortem to. Sharing the lessons learned is difficult, other than the fact that it transitions a pro there's a, a project list will show up for the following fiscal year that'll look a little different than it has in the past. You'll be talking about things a little differently. That list is a direct result of the incident, and those are the things typically you'll work on as you move forward. Yeah. And I just want to say thanks uh, to you. I know that uh, this was hard to talk about. I know there was a lot of things that have been going on in your life the last six months. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to cover this because I do think it's important that other folks out there in the industry that are working every day um, maybe haven't been through a large breach like this or, or even a, in many cases, even a small breach. Maybe they've been broken into and don't even know it. Uh, but someday they're going to show up on a Thursday expecting an average day and things are going to go bad from there. And I think the more of these kind of conversations we can have out in the open, I think the, the better uh, we can help folks be prepared for the impacts on their lives coming up. And I hope it helps. Well, I certainly appreciate you sharing. I'm sure my listeners appreciate you sharing. Uh, I, I really thank you for your time, Tom. And I will uh, close up on that and, and thank my listeners for listening. Uh, I hope that you found this enjoyable. Uh, if you have other questions for Tom, feel free to uh, send those on uh, through the normal channels. And I will pass that back and, and maybe I'll do uh, like a Q&A uh, session at some point in the future with Tom. So thanks very much. And uh, we're going to close out this, uh, this part of the podcast now. So thanks again, Tom, and listeners, we'll see you soon. Hey there, security peeps. This is Brent Houston from Microsoft Inc. and stateofsecurity.com. I wanted to say thank you very much for spending time with us, and thanks for listening to this month's episode. If you'd like to learn more about Microsoft Inc., you can do so on the web. We are at microsolved.com. That's M-I-C-R-O. Solved.com or stateofsecurity.com if you'd like to check out our blog. You can also reach out anytime and talk to me on Twitter. I'm at LBHUSTON and I would love to hear from you. Microsoft is, of course, the sponsor of this podcast 
And uh, they have a wide variety of security services from pen testing to application security to policy and process consulting, risk assessment, and a bunch of deeply technical uh, work all the way down to the circuit level of testing devices. So over 20 years experience, if you're interested in security services, please check us out and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Again, that's microsolved.com, M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D. Until next time, thanks for checking us out on the statussecurity.com podcast. And as always, stay safe out there. Hey there, security peeps. So this is one of my new short sessions. And today, it's kind of a rainy day here in Columbus, Ohio. But I'm sitting here across the table from the once, the fabulous, the amazing Bill Semph. So, Bill, thanks for being on again. Hey, thanks for having me. So, in this rapid session, I wanted to just have you riff on an idea for a couple of minutes. I want you to talk about whatever is on the top of your head today about information security. What is the one thing that my listeners should be thinking about today? Well, I just came back from B-Sides Cleveland, um, where I gave a talk called um, Why the Web is Broken. And that talk is all about the vast number of different vulnerabilities that have shown up recently in the press over the past four or five years that have just popped up over and over and over again. And so many people are concerned about network security and getting uh, information into and out of networks. Um, what I want to get across to people is the understanding that it's all code. All of it is driven by software. And the people who are building that software have a certain responsibility towards understanding the underlying security of the application or the system they're trying to work within. Um, you can't have a, a separation between the what a router does um, and its interface and the software code that runs on it. There just isn't any kind of a break there. The developers need to understand that the, the code they're writing um, whether it's for the, the volleyball team's website or it's the maintenance application on a router, has to maintain a certain level of standard, a certain, it has to hit a certain bar as far as application security is concerned. Now, security people, that means, too, they have a responsibility as well. And that is they have to remember that the bugs they find yeah. ultimately go back to developers who have to work on the code. That's right. So talk for a minute about what it's like. What happens when somebody hands off a vulnerability sure. to you in a piece of code that you spent your life writing? Well, that's part of the problem is the, there's a huge um, divergence in terms between software developers and, and even application security specialists. We don't, the developers, we don't think in terms of vulnerabilities. We think in terms of bugs, uh, defects in, in, the, in the current parlance. And the, the we don't we don't take the security vulnerability or the exploit as 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 a um use case for for a defect um we need it to be translated into something that's actually fixable on our part it's not enough to say hey this field in the url is susceptible to cross site scripting fix it there has to be some underlying defect that we are we are fixing um the, 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 there's data um, in the URL, and we're using it in our application, and we're not, um, we're, we're not meeting the standards as far as validation of that data. Um, therefore, it needs to be validated before we can use it, and that's the bug we're fixing. And that's even though most InfoSec people are going to hear both of those and say, okay, those are logically equivalent. From the developer's perspective, that's not really true at all. They, they just think of it as the... The, the defect at hand, the thing that their software code is doing it shouldn't do or is not doing that it should do, and that's that's it. 
So, Bill, what are you reading right now that brings up this thought of it all being code? What what is driving that? What what put you in this frame of mind? You know, I, there I can't really point to any particular research that I've been reading, but I've been spending a lot more time with developers recently over the past maybe six months um, doing trainings, um, doing work at clients. I, I've been living a lot more in the development scene after spending, what, two and a half years being primarily a, a, a vulnerability specialist, a vulnerability assessor. And it's reminding me that communicating with developers is, is harder than we think. Um, so it's not really so much external content as it is just the experience of what I'm doing right now. So, man, it is a rainy day, and uh, we're just hanging out. We just had some great food. I'm sorry you weren't here to hang out with us. We had some Tex-Mex, and, man, all I can say is Bill Sum can eat some tacos, man. It was awesome. like a taco. Uh, Thanks for hanging out with us. We hope that uh, you found this interesting, and thanks for listening to our shorts. We'll talk to you again soon. See ya.